Hello, I'm Jack Badams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast with a sense of adventure, then we are the natural selection. This is How Many Geese. On a mission to Mexico. Really stabby. I just, yeah, that's broken my skin. So there we go, straight in the line of fire. Did you see what was living in the spit bucket earlier? It's green as far as the eye can see in every direction. IUCN least concern, I should point out to everyone, so totally okay to punch them. That is crazy. That is a bleeding tree. We're live. But where are we live? Where are we live, listeners? I am incredibly excited to say how many geese is in the jungle. We're here. (laughs) In the most extraordinary thing to happen to us. The podcast is coming to you from the middle of the Mexican jungle. Yep. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be honest, no one saw this coming. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't, you didn't, Mexico didn't. <laughs> Mexico certainly didn't. The jungle didn't. We have spent, what, a couple of days travelling. Yep. So we had um, the flight over from from London to, to Cancun. Yep. And then it was a equally long bus ride that took about 10 or so hours in the end. I think the bus was longer than the plane, yeah. which is always a state of affairs. <laughs> always a metric to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to focus in on. Um, so then we took a bus ride all the way down from Cancun to the quite extraordinary Calic Mall biosphere. Yeah, not a sphere. Not a sphere, <laughs> famously, <laughs> but very bio. Very bio. We're currently surrounded by bio. Um, but yeah, this is a huge tract of forest where we find ourselves talking to you about an expedition that we've been invited on. Yeah, and with you lingering on the about just then, because I think one of the big bits of this is, yes, we're here. We don't know that much about what's here. Yeah. So yeah. when it comes to what we're talking to you about, we are going to need to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> speak to some of the other people who are here. Yes. So over the over the course of this series that we're doing from uh, from Mexico, we will be meeting all the different characters that make up this expedition because there are fantastic people working here, specialists in every sort of animal life. You know, you've got insects, you've got birds, you've got uh, bats, you've got all the reptiles amphibians you've got all these different taxa that people are looking at listeners know animals (laughs) (laughs) thanks to jack there for just taking us through what animals are (laughs) season whatever this is when it it comes out it is the heat i should say that he is i mean how have you been finding it warm it's warm in a word it's it's hot we spent our first night here last night and the word congealed is just congealed to your old mat yeah see the worst bit about that is that i'm in a tent with jack (laughs) and i didn't know he was congealing (laughs) next to me so now i have to live with the fact there's a wall of bags between us be grateful (laughs) for the wall of bags they Um, congealed together uh, and we should say as well who's brought us here yes so we are joining the expedition of operation molosia who you may remember we have mentioned them a couple of times before on the podcast it's where roddy and i met Mm -hmm. uh, when we were on an expedition in madagascar with them Mm -hmm. um we have told stories from other expeditions that we've been on before um but neither of us have been uh, abroad with them now for well since madagascar so six years yeah so six years ago was the last time we were away with Operation Wallacea when we were working as staff and now we've been invited here to basically try and capture this amazing expedition experience and distill it into goose form. (laughs) (laughs) The jus de goose (laughs) of an Otpol expedition. But to just paint a little bit more of a picture for anyone who is new to the podcast as to what Operation Wallacea are, they're a UK organisation who work with scientists, national governments uh, around the world, scientists, comma, national governments, comma, couldn't think of a third one, around the world. But they run research expeditions which university students, school students are able to go out and join to gain experience of field surveying techniques. And because of the support they get from the students in doing this, it means they're able to run incredibly long studies of forests, reefs, wherever they may be studying. Uh, Instead of just being on like a two-year grant cycle, for example, they're able to collect data over many, many, many years. So Calakmul 
I'm sure someone's going to get this number better than me, but I think they're over here for 10 years at least at yeah. this stage. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And some of their sites, they've been running for even longer than that. Yeah. Um, so when I was a sixth form student, I went to Honduras as a as a student. And yeah, you know, you went along and you got to be in this camp and you got to be surrounded by these amazing scientists. And for me, that was an amazing experience that I then carried forward into, you know, the rest of my life. So it's fantastic that uh, this experience is offered to students and we're here to basically get under the skin of the operation and show you what it's like really yeah yeah i'm gonna be honest i got distracted by the wind did it did it sound well i don't know okay i mean this can can stay in to be honest because you know just so everyone knows when it comes to recording a podcast in the middle of absolute nowhere there isn't really a guidebook you can look to so what roddy has essentially had to do in the lead up to this is take the podcast studio and fit it in tupperware fit it into three lunch boxes <laughs> um, and bring it out into the middle of absolute nowhere yeah so hopefully this sounds great hopefully this sounds great but with that and actually putting that out there apologies if down the line something does sound a bit funky it's what you're gonna get yeah we're in the jungle <laughs> we're... Cut us some slack yeah. <laughs> but with that all being said i think it's frankly high time that you know we stopped waffling and spoke to someone who actually knows their shit yeah let's do it all right so in our bid to understand more about this amazing place that we've come to We've called in the big guns. <laughs> We've got head scientist and all-round force of nature, <laughs> Dr. Cathy Slater. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks very much for inviting me. Now, am I right in thinking that you're the reason we're all here? You're the reason that any of this is here? Hmm. Yeah, kind of, yes. Can you, can you explain a bit about how this project started here? And, and your role in that. Okay, so I was been involved with Operation Monocea for a long time as a student uh, and as a staff member. Mm-hmm. So a student in Indonesia, staff member in Honduras. Uh, and our site in Honduras is in Cloud Forest and it's amazing, but not very exciting for the big furry stuff, which is what <laughs> I'm really interested in, okay? Right. Uh, and I was already living in Mexico. Uh, I came over here to do my PhD and then just didn't really want to leave. Uh, So I've been here 20 years now. Um, So I wanted to have a a site where we could focus on the big stuff, the primates and the felids and the undulates. And actually, it completely came about by accident. I wanted to set up a project in conjunction with a Mexican NGO that I know very well, Pronatora Peninsula de Yucatan because they're the real experts in kind of working with indigenous Mayan communities. So I was like, we Mm. collect the data, you tell us what to do with it. That'll be a perfect partnership. And I tried to persuade them to do a project in Sion Khan because it's near where I live. Ah. And they said to me, no, if if you're talking about a project of this magnitude, the place where you're actually needed is Kalak Mall. You're going to have to commute. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's logistically impossible, basically, or very complicated. And is experiencing problems with climate change and nobody has got enough data to figure out what to do. Uh, so actually I was steered towards here yeah. uh, and then we kind of set it up from there. But to be where you'd be most useful, which is you <clears throat> exactly know, that. Brilliant. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we're in and we've been referring to it as the, you know, the biosphere. Mm hmm. But what's a biosphere? You know, I don't know how many of the listeners will they'll be familiar with national parks and nature reserves, but what's a biosphere? What does it mean? So a biosphere is essentially uh, a large uh, wilderness area of kind of, of, of biological importance that's in kind of excellent condition. Um, so it's kind of mu- generally much larger than your average national park uh, and so has a m- massive importance uh, for, for species that need very, very large areas. But as a biosphere reserve, it's also supposed to be pioneering uh, uh, for conservation. So a biosphere reserve has to have active development programmes with all the communities that live around the outside oh. it uh, and has to be actively involved in in, in sustainable land management uh, as part of their activities for, for conservation. Ah, and, and, and this place is huge it is yeah. it's like when you get <laughs> when you get to the top of the the pyramids at Calak Mall it's 
it's astonishingly big. It's yeah. green as far as the eye can see yeah. in every direction. And Basically, I don't think yeah. I've ever seen that before. Me neither. Me neither. Scale. You always see something. There's yeah. always some yeah. sort of building or structure or a phone tower somewhere. But oh yeah, when you get to Calamore, nothing. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just right to the right to the horizon. It's very it's very heartening actually, really. But mm. places like this, you it know, still exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the that's the the place and what why is this place so special in terms of its species because there's a lot of endemic species here aren't there mm-hmm. species that you don't find anywhere else mm-hmm. something that was really interesting that i heard you talking about before was endemism we often associate with islands yes but we're not in an island nope so why are there so many things here that you can't find anywhere else well because we're sort of in an island in the mm. sense that it's a peninsula a yucatan peninsula so three sides of it is indeed uh, is indeed water and is indeed uh, ocean but once you go a little bit further south than here uh, you end up hitting a mountain range which was the mountain ridge that formed when North and South America collided to form basically Central America uh-huh. and it's all pine and oak forest because it's for the high elevation so things that are used to living in this lowland forest habitat they can't live in the sea and they can't live in the mountains so they are isolated right. so that's why we've got the endemism yeah because you look through the books and it's you know Yucatan, Yucatan this Yucatan uh, that yeah, yeah it's great well, for yeah. guessing if you haven't got a clue what a species is just go <laughs> yeah Yucatan squirrel uh, yeah. and half the time you're right so yeah, yeah it helps <laughs> and it's really really frustrating you know, speaking from a bird perspective big into my birds and it's like you know you'll see this parrot and you look at it and you go oh it's definitely got to be this species and then you open up the book and there's a yucatan version yucatan which looks quite yeah. and you're like oh come on which one is it yeah so can you explain as as the sort of head scientist here how operation wallacea works and how it's feeding back into you know you mentioned it there the reason that it that it was point you appointed to this particular biosphere this particular area and can you explain how the work that's been undertaken here is being used and what it's showing mm, okay so um operation molossier expeditions essentially involve a shitload of people yeah. uh, <laughs> but not all in the same place at once because that would be a disaster but essentially we are large operations and so we have multiple different camps set up in this reserve in each camp you've got a bird team a bat team a reptile amphibian team a butterfly team primate team felid and undulate team habitat team uh, and so we can collect enormous amounts of data in a fairly short period of time spread over a very very large area that Mm. and just your average group of scientists it's logistically impossible to do and so our projects really work in areas that are massive (laughs) logistically a bit difficult to work in where there is desperately need some data and so here we know we've got massive problems with uh, with climate change uh, with cyclical droughts uh, which is a massive problem in what 1.2 million hectares of forest with absolutely no rivers or streams. Yeah, because that's the extraordinary thing yes. about this place. It is bizarre. Like, uh, yeah, honestly. <laughs> it's bizarre. And I never realised how useful I was to going through a forest and there being water or a stream uh-huh. or a pond or anything like that. And just to be in such a huge area and not no rivers. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. It's yeah. bizarre. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so all we have are these, they're called aguadas, which are essentially like, they can be the size of your average garden pond or yeah. a, almost a reasonable sized lake, but they're completely dependent on rainfall. Yeah. And so obviously if you have drought periods, you've got really, really big problems. Yeah. And so the, the the reason for being here is to monitor what's happening to all of the different uh, you know animal species. Are they dying? Are they kind of doing okay? Are they changing where they live in the reserve? Because the further south and east you go, the more humid it gets. Mm -hmm. So is everything trying to head to Belize and Guatemala, essentially, um, uh, to try and understand what needs to be done? Um, Obviously, when you have somewhere so massive, there's no way you've got enough money to do all of the management everywhere you want to. So the reserve management team needs to know where are the priority areas Mm -hmm. and what do we need to do about it. And then the other part of our project that's in collaboration with that Pronatura Peninsula Yucatan is how do all the people adjust? Because there's more than just animals here and it's a biosphere reserve with indigenous Mayan communities living here who have always been here long before it was a reserve. And so we need to find a method that works for everybody. Uh, And so that's what the aim of the project is. Yeah, because it's not one big uh, forest where that everyone's locked out of, is it? There's people living living within, we should make that clear, there's people living within this forest um, and they have to make a living and they have to survive mm-hmm. alongside it so when it comes to then so that's 
that's the reason Operation Wallace is here, and it's been running for ten years now. This is the eleventh year. Is the, so yeah. we're in the eleventh year that the, the the data has been recorded. What is it showing? Mm, so it, and it's, it's a bit obvious when you think about it. So. What, which groups, which animals are least affected by the drought? Mm. Birds and bats. Mm-hmm. They've yep. got wings, haven't they? Yeah. So if there yep. isn't any water where you are, you just fly to somewhere where there's water. So that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, the hepetofauna, our reptiles and amphibians, are having a terrible time. And yeah. it makes sense. They don't range very far. Most of them live in aguadas and so they're not just yeah. losing drinking water they're losing their habitat and um for example the yucatan peninsula is rated number one number one in the americas for reptiles because of the levels of, end- of endemism oh. so uh so the having your reptiles and amphibians affected here is a big blow because yeah. there's so many endemic species here um and then what's happening with our, our larger ranging animals so uh so our jaguar puma kind of the peccary and deer and also our primates is that they're just all migrating towards where the water is. But the problem is to really get to where most of the water is, they've actually got to come out of the reserve, run through an area that's community owned land, which still contains forest, to get to these lakes and rivers that you've got once you get over the border into Belize and into kind of uh, the northeastern bit of Guatemala. Right. So we're realizing that actually where we need to pay, where the conservation efforts needs to be is inside the reserve to try and do everything we can to restore the water bodies in the aguadas because everything's Mm -hmm. moving because of lack of water and then focus our attentions with the communities outside the reserve in that southeast area to do everything we can to enable the communities to sustainably manage their land and continue to protect that forest which which still exists that all the animals rely on And you mentioned at the start that the bigger, furrier things yeah. were your bag. Yes, they are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like we're moving into that territory. So yeah. can you tell us about the bigger, furrier things in the in the reserve, which are affected by the... I mean, you've mentioned some already, the jaguars and... Yeah. Yes. Uh, so the official symbol of the reserve is jaguar because it yeah. has a very, very high... Uh, it has a high density here, Um for, for Mexico, but it's also considered to be really probably only the, the only genetically viable population of jaguar in Mexico oh, because wow. it's the only one that isn't an isolated really? population because off. it's got this connectivity yeah. through into the Selva Maya. So the thing about Calakmola is the northern tip of the Selva Maya or the Mayan jungle, which is 10.6 million hectares of continuous forest that covers kind of the southern bits of Mexico, northern Guatemala and northwestern uh, Belize. So it's the second largest stand of tropical forest in the world after the Amazon. Wow. So, of course, everything that needs a big area this is where they're doing well yeah. basically and elsewhere in their geographical ranges not so much same with beds tapir endangered uh, it's the largest mammal that you yeah. find in the near yeah. tropics uh, they're massive they're up like 250 kilos um but they are endangered when they update the iucns they'll come up as critically endangered they're really not doing very well but here they are right mm. um spider monkeys uh, and howler monkeys both of those species are endangered species of primates here they're doing well not very well elsewhere in their geographical yeah. range. It's kind of a repeated story, basically. Uh, and it's just because it's such a massive yeah. stretch of forest that things that need huge areas uh, are still in it. And yeah. so spider monkeys is one of the first that will always disappear. They basically are very picky. They live in large groups. They're large-bodied <laughs> primates, and they only want ripe fruit. Mm-hmm. And so they need high-quality primary forest. And as soon as it gets disturbed or fragmented, they're always the first species that disappears. Uh, so if you have spider monkeys, you pretty much know you've got everything else. The spider monkey in the coal mine. Yeah. So to yeah. Speak. yeah. <laughs> pretty much. And I should say, like, you mentioned jaguars there. And it wasn't that far, it didn't feel that far of us driving south from Cancun on the way here that you saw what are the coolest road signs I've ever seen. Oh, yeah, oh, Jaguar yeah. crossing signs. Which are the, yeah. tri- you know, the, the big diamond-shaped things with the Jaguar in the middle. Yeah. And it was just like, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. yeah. So, But, yeah, they are all over the place, actually. Uh, yeah. There's a lot more of them around, even outside of the protected areas. Yeah. Um, but lots of tourism development, forests are disappearing, and so they're, they're kind of, I think in the long term, the only place where they're actually going to end up doing okay is inside the protected areas, which is why we've got to do our best to manage them and maintain connectivity between them yeah that's the big thing do you do you know how many are in the reserve there's about 400 and something i think on the latest estimates uh, inside this reserve which is pretty good yeah Yeah. that's a lot (laughs) (laughs) but also it's a massive reserve so yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah And one thing you mentioned, just going back to the reserve, or not the reserve, rather, the Silver Maya, mm-hmm. is you said it's the biggest tract of tropical forest outside of the Amazon. Mm-hmm. 
So one thing which has been is I'd never heard of the silver Maya or the phrase the silver Maya mm-hmm. ahead of this and had always associated in my mind kind of the likes of the Congo mm-hmm. as the next big mm-hmm. forest. So I guess A, is it bigger than the Congo? Mm-hmm. And then B, why... Why has no one heard about it? (laughs) Yeah, I know, it's weird. So this is where I'm going to end up saying something that ends up being wrong and loads of people are going to complain about it. Is it bigger than the Congo? I think the original expanse of the Congo was bigger, but most of it's gone now. That's Mm. the reality. Right. Uh, And the Selva Maya, the thing about the Selva Maya is a lot of it is kind of seasonally flooded swamp forest, which is terrible Mm. for agriculture. So I think a lot of the reason why a lot of it stayed is because it's not actually useful for farming. Can't actually do anything with it. Um, And it's all full of ancient mind ruin sites all over the place Uh, Mm. and so it has kind of tourism benefits and a lot of benefits of kind of that you can earn money out of it in without having to chop it down in a way that's not so easy in just regular forest i suppose because Mm. you've got so many tourist attractions it just involves looking at stuff basically yeah yeah Yeah. so on on that note you mentioned um you mentioned about the jaguars and that you that they may be coming into more conflict with people potentially is there much of that going on is there much conflict between these big furry sharp teeth animals and uh, the people that live around here yeah i mean it, it's not a new thing okay mm. so mm. wherever you've got livestock farming particular cattle cattle farming going on you're always going to end up with with jaguar conflict because what people are doing is chopping down the forest that and that had the natural play in it for the jaguars and then replacing it with these slightly stupid and very large domestic animals yeah. so jags were like all right bit weird but <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so of course they eat them, uh, and it, but it leads to persecution. It's not actually been a massive problem in the past here in Kalakmul because mm. it's a massive expanse of forest with lots of their natural prey in it. But it is something that's starting to increase with the cyclical droughts. Mm. A lot of those um, undulates have migrated south uh, yeah. and are now Guatemalan or Belizean and not living here anymore. Yeah. And we've got, when you get these droughts, you get more and more jags coming and hanging around the outskirts of the reserve. And if there is livestock farming, then you do start to get problems. Yeah. Yes. And definitely. the drought is just, the, the, the wet season's just not coming in the, in, the, in the same way that it used to. Yeah, basically you, what would used to happen is kind of September, October and November, it would just absolutely piss it down and not yeah. stop for three months. And that's what you needed because it basically, all the forest floor would be flooded. Uh, there'd be temporary streams everywhere and, and all of it would accumulate in the lowest lying ground, which is these aguadas that would fill them all up. Yeah. Uh, and if we don't really get that anymore, and so if it like, it, so yesterday it tipped it down for a couple of hours yeah. and then it just evaporates because yeah. it's so flipping mm. hot. Yeah, there's nothing. There's, 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 there's nothing. No, there's you no wouldn't even know it would rain. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's the problem that we've got now. We're missing these consecutive heavy rains. That's what we're missing. Um, so if you look at mean annual rainfall, it doesn't really look like there's a drama. But mm. when you look at when it's happening and then the timings, that's yeah. the really big problem. Mm. Yeah. And with the, with the migrations of the animals, I don't know if we know this or even can know this, but how do... So I don't really know what this is. Basically, if the drought has never happened before... Although I know it's cyclical, but I'm guessing the cycle is longer than the life of the average peccary or deer. Mm-hmm. How do they know where to go? Because if, if there was water here, I would think, oh, they go to the water and follow the water. But there is nothing. Like, do we have any idea how they know where to head, basically? Well, but um, all the, the, the undulates, particularly the white-lipped peccary, they do know where all the aguadas are. Yeah. And they have enormous home ranges. And yeah. their movement patterns is just aguada to aguada. Yeah. Right. And they do move all the way through like Mexico and into Belize and Guatemala yeah. so they don't know what country they're in we've decided sure. that randomly yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so they have huge movement patterns and actually some uh, some some friends and colleagues of ours have got GPS collars on, on, on white lip peccary that they picked up in Guatemala and then come back to Mexico oh. and then gone back to Guatemala oh, wow. but so they huge. only move from Aguada to Aguada so they do know where they all are yeah. actually however at the same time the last time we had the really really worst lots of droughts uh, quite a lot of those peccary died because yeah. even though you know then there's just nothing with in the range of yeah, the area that yeah, you know yeah. um and so yes it has a it has an impact but everything here all of our data shows that basically where are all the animals either around aguadas because they're water or the other cool thing is they're all around ruin sites yes um and not because they're tourist uh, touristing yeah. animals going oh look at the ruins <laughs> they're cool uh they just love culture yeah exactly so it's because the forest is a hundred percent manipulated yeah. wherever you're adjacent to, to ruin sites um yeah can you tell us more about that so I mean, yeah this is this one is, of my favorite things so about this cool. forest so the ancient Mayans uh, were real experts at agroforestry. 
um, and um, all the way around kind of these these ruin sites. So we talk about the Kalakmul ruins, which was kind of the capital city of mm-hmm. this area. But there's 1,438 ruin sites in this reserve. So they are all over the place. Yeah. And obviously, wherever there were people living, they needed to grow food to eat. And so what the mines used to do was find an area where you've got an iguada, so you know water's going to end up here. They would plant lots and lots of native fruitive tree uh, species uh, around the outskirts of it. Um, so species that you know grow here anyway, but plant them in very high densities. Mm-hmm. Some of them, they were eating the fruit. Most of them, they were growing for the dyes, which is one of the big things that they sell. Mm-hmm. So kind of the typical red, yellow and blue colorings on all your Mayan paintings all come from endemic tree species here mm-hmm. in the Yucatan Peninsula. So they would sell those dyes uh-huh. over the border in Guatemala where yeah. they didn't have them. Um, they would also be growing the chicosapote tree, which is the natural form of chewing gum. That's also an endemic tree species to hear. And back in the day, I was like, God, those mines really like chewing gum, didn't they? What were they growing so much of that for? But actually, and it is a big fruiting tree, but they weren't growing it for that. The resin was actually one of the main ingredients in their cement. Um, which clearly worked pretty yeah. well because yes, all these structures are still, still standing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you would have, essentially, they would be grow, have these production forests. And uh, obviously, you know, a thousand years later, mm. anywhere around a ruin site, you've got unusually high density of large kind of productive fruiting trees. Yeah. And so if you have lots of fruiting trees, you have lots of frugivores, so lots of the birds, the bats, the monkeys, but also things like the deer and the peccary here, Uh, which is your wild boar, they eat fruit too. So then if they're here, then your predators are there eating the things that eat the fruit. And so wherever you've got ruins, you have a big hub of activity. Um, And the other thing is that the ancient mines all the way around their ruin sites were these insane um, kind of rainwater capture systems, irrigation, terracing Mm. water all over the place to be able to retain as much water as possible. And it's why when you see ruins, you quite often see um, ficus trees growing out of the top of them and these ficus trees are a riparian species they always grow next to water yeah. but they're growing on a ruin because it's got water in it because ah. there's still remnants of cisterns and so things and stuff it so it store it when it rains and that's why you get those yeah. and obviously they're massive fruiting trees as well so yeah. you get these weird riparian habitats of things that like water in an area where there isn't any yeah. because it's underground because the mount- the, because of the remnants of what the mines built so, so cool. those ruin sites are big big hubs of activity for, for wildlife and it's why it's an UNESCO mixed world heritage site here so a world heritage site of culture and nature not because it's cool for, for both because yeah. you wouldn't have one without the other right. so the ancient minds made this forest better we wouldn't have this amount of biodiversity in this forest if it wasn't for the way that the ancient minds manipulated it are there i mean first of all that is bonkers <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> like, mad isn't it know. yeah and i think it's really i think it's really cool just to have you know what you just said just there like the so often it's like people versus nature and the only way to have nature is without the people uh-huh. and like the mayans enriched this yes they did habitat for everything else that lives in it yeah and i just think that's a really yeah it's just a really cool thing to think about mm-hmm. yeah. yeah well we're not doing too great at it you know <laughs> well, now yeah, I mean, I'm not, yeah. Yeah, quite. Um, yeah. but the thing i wanted to pick up on that you said there was it being a unesco mixed site and mm-hmm. the number of archaeological ruins within the reserve are there is there anywhere else equivalent to this do you know oh well, also in the selva maya tikal uh, so tikal was the first ever mixed world heritage site uh, awarded by unesco because of the interplay between the ancient mayans and the nature right. that you've got there uh, and so then this was the 32nd i think there's only 32 in the world that have got that dual award status oh wow basically yeah and is there any conflict between the efforts of the archaeologists and the efforts of the conservationists well there used to be. Okay. There used to be. Uh, and it used to be a bit, oh, I hope it, no archaeologists listen to this. It used <laughs> to be a bit like, how dare you weird biologists come into our ruin sites and all you're interested in is animals. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like almost offended. Yeah. But actually, I think now that it, particularly, it became a mixed world heritage site here in 2014, and it did actually change the dynamic a lot because now all the bio, all the biologists and archaeologists actually do have to work together mm. as one of the requirements with, with, with UNESCO. And actually now there's a really cool collaboration because now what we're realising is that um, I think it's going to be the archaeologists that are going to save the animals in the reserve because they've now 
focusing a bit more. So INA, which is Department of Anthropology uh, for the Mexican government, are focusing a bit more on the cultural legacy of the Mayans is more than just rock structures, mm. isn't it? So how have they manipulated the forest and, and particularly to do with these uh, these aguadas and kind of retaining water. And so it was last year they did this, a bunch of LIDAR analysis, which when you send down this, this radar, which can basically give you blueprints of kind of structures and things underground or things that you can't see with the naked eye. And it turns out that most of these aguadas that we thought were small ponds are, you know, perfectly square, six metres deep and lined with clay, <laughs> which, which nature doesn't really do squares. Yeah. Tape, <laughs> tape is not so good not at Not so that, much. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so now we're realising that... Um, actually if we've got these big problems with climate change and what you get now is drought and hurricanes drought and hurricanes so it's either ridiculous amounts of rain or nothing but if you have the ability to store a shitload of water when mm. it actually does rain very heavily it will see you through those drought periods yeah. and so now what the archaeologists are investigating is restoring those aguadas but as an archaeological monument mm. which would turn them back into these reservoirs and would have the ability for them to actually retain enough water to get these animals through these prolonged uh, periods of drought and these extreme dry seasons. And are there any predictions on how that might imp- because for example we've seen tapirs wallowing in mm. the aguadas if they're all suddenly six metres deep and square, <laughs> yeah. could that actually negatively bounce back on them? It, yeah, it would do if you did that with all the aguadas, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And the thing is that it's not that they it's not there are no natural aguadas. Yeah. Uh, what the archaeologists think is that the, the mines have found an aguada, which is a natural one, and where they're near to their human settlements, they've excavated it and made it deeper. Yeah. So it's better at storing water for their human yeah. settlement. So there are natural aguadas all over the place, but next to ruin sites, there are ones that have been yeah. manipulated. So as long as you've got plenty of aguadas that you're not manipulating enough and they're not an archaeological structure anyway it is genuinely a mm. pond yeah. but if you do the lidar analysis particularly close to ones that are near ruins where you're likely to have it manipulated yeah. then you can select a few important ones yeah. to be kind of the big reservoir for that bit of the reserve yeah. uh, and that would really make a difference for sure it's such a cool interplay isn't it between like the archaeology and the biology and, yeah. and when you think about it it makes so much sense because you cannot build a city with so no water well, you don't have any water <laughs> yeah like yeah. of course they were storing it yeah yeah now we, we, we've sort of got into now the mayans and the 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 environment and how it all interplayed and you were telling us yesterday um some really cool stuff about how mayan culture revered some of the animals mm. and how that's played into sort of the the, the status of them now Mm-hmm. Um, so could you just you know go yeah back to so um and so one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that the Mayans were not wiped out. Mm. They are all still here. Yeah. So yes, the Spanish uh, did indeed rock up. Um, if they'd rocked up a couple of hundred years <laughs> yeah. earlier, they would have had their asses whooped and sent packing. Yeah. By the time the Spanish got here, because there was yet another massive drought, all the big cities had already been abandoned and all the armies had been disbanded. And so You said Spanish it was a hundred, a hundred year hundred drought? hundred year drought, it was reported. Yeah, they didn't really get the proper heavy rains from 1,000 to 1,100 AD. So yeah, That's it was a extreme... And so it wasn't that everybody was wiped out, but they realised we cannot live in massive cities altogether anymore. Everyone was much more dispersed. Um, but certainly for a big chunk of the Yucatan Peninsula, the Spanish lost, yeah. monumentally lost that war. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so for a lot of this area, everyone's first language is Maya. Spanish is their second language. Um, if you ask everybody kind of what religion are you, then they'll generally say they're Catholic or some sort of version of Christianity. Then if you ask them how many gods there are, they'll be like, well, there's God, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Sun God, Rain God, Crocodile God, Jaguar God, Serpent God, Eagle God. You're like, okay, cool. Uh, And so there's this really nice kind of mixture uh, of kind of this interplay. But yes, you're right. All, um, all of the, the most of the mind gods uh, were linked with animals, and there was a huge revere uh, for, for different animals. So, the jaguar god, for example, Balam, uh, was responsible for giving both humans and other animals the ability to hunt. And mm. so you would kind of, you know, needed your jaguar god. Yeah. But at the same time, because the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, the minds believed that it kind of carried on going through the underworld at night. Mm. And the jaguar's role, jaguar god's role was to safely escort the sun through the underworld so, so it would rise cool. again the next day. So you don't go around killing jaguars for fun because the implications could be pretty dramatic. Yeah, the sun might not come Exactly, on, yeah. <laughs> um, and so the crocodile god was the was kind of the 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 protective god of merchant traders. So people who are out and about in kind of rivers and out in in coastal regions Uh, trading, rather than it being something that they feared 
those crocodiles were there protecting us and the yeah. crocodile god was protecting them. So so it was a nice dynamic, you know, between them. Um, primates were believed to be the creator's god's second attempt at making humans, <laughs> which isn't really that far off the concept no. of evolution, really, is it? Yeah. No, you can totally But they have that. semi-sacred status, so no one will hunt them. The concept of hunting and eating a monkey here is just bizarre to everybody. Yeah. Um, and so, and your, you know, kind of the eagles and the vultures were messengers from the from the heavens. Your bats were messengers from the underworld. Yeah. So every animal almost yeah. has some sort of very important role, and it's still carried on today. So, um, so people here and the Mayan culture has much more respect. Uh, for for animals than you would find in kind of an an, an average yeah. society, and it's another reason why the selva maya is so important and why the biodiversity is so high here and why so many species are doing well here that are doing terribly everywhere else in yeah. their geographical range. Unless you're a peccary, and then and you're completely fucked. Because well, there's yes, because no nothing. Of the well, there's no god of peccaries. No, there's not. It's true. It's yeah. true. Yeah, all deer actually. Yeah. God of the ungulates just yes. forgot to show up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah pretty much. Yeah. Uh, you said that the spider monkeys were the second attempt. Mm-hmm. So what was the first attempt? Oh, it's a bit like the Three Little Pigs story. <laughs> so the first, the story goes that the um, creator god wanted to make people and decided to make them out of the corn from the fields, which is a bit of an error because that's a cultivated crop and there weren't any people to cultivate it yet. So I don't understand that <laughs> bit of the story, but we'll let that go. <laughs> we'll, we'll, over it. we'll let that go. Use the corn from the fields and then the wind came and blew them all away. <laughs> and so the second attempt, made them out of the wood from the trees and made what was called the wood people uh, which the creator god it somehow quite liked but mm-hmm. went not really what I was aiming for but alright yep. uh, and then the bit I love best is that then the creator god had a sit down meeting with some of the other gods going well I'm trying to make people and it's not going very well <laughs> uh, and they basically got some advice from the crocodile god the eagle god the serpent god and the jaguar god who were like well you were right with the corn from the fields but you need to mix it with the earth from the ground and so he went oh thanks very much and then made people and went hooray but because obviously the second attempt the wood people were still there and the creator god liked them so much they were allowed to continue to exist and therefore had this kind of semi-sacred status and that's the monkeys and that's the monkeys workshopped it with his colleagues at the water cooler (laughs) I know yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've got this problem you know this people account I just can't close it (laughs) one of the things you told us yesterday You've mentioned how they revere the animals, uh, mm-hmm. all connected to the gods. And you had a colleague or worked with someone who killed a snake? Oh, no, yeah. This was back in a different reserve called Punta Laguna. This was when I was doing my, my PhD. And, uh, yeah, there was a, a further lance, which is a, a, it's a type of viper. And there was a particularly large and feisty one that was, I mean, it was properly chasing people around the village, I kid you not. Yeah. And this was back, this was, what, 20 years ago when if somebody had been bitten, that would have been really bad because there were just no roads, no ability to get to a hospital mm-hmm. in time. And so, yeah, the villagers, nobody was like, oh, we'll kill the snake. No, there was a big village meeting about, <laughs> we kind of need to kill the snake, but, you know, what are we going to do about it? <laughs> Then uh, they did actually kill the snake, which very impressively, uh, one of the members of the village came out with a, with a rifle and shot this moving snake between the eyes. So that takes some severe talent there. Yeah, that's, that's um, But then, yes, once they kill the snake, obviously you've immediately pissed off the serpent god, haven't you? Uh, which is not a good idea. And apparently they were saying if you piss off the serpent god, then he empowers all of the, the snakes in the, in, the, in the forest to come and get you. So they basically had to then do an offering to apologise to the serpent god. And so basically had to get some copal, which is the incense that comes from one of the resins of one of the trees. They picked up the snake. We had to take it into the forest to, to find one of the saber trees, which is the sacred tree of the Mayan. We wrapped the snake basically around that tree and then basically had to do a ceremony to the serpent god to ask for forgiveness. Uh, and then after that, everyone then went back into the village. Mm-hmm. So it's not like people see a snake and just machete it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, 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 some a, lot seri- there's a lot of weight on. attached to basically uh, doing anything like that so yeah yeah, another example of how animals just do better when you've got some sort of culture or religion that places importance on animals hello jack here and after that lovely heartfelt sentiment about humans placing importance on animals it's now time for our recurring segment of this series in true goose style we'll be asking everybody that we interview the same question back to jungle jack and roddy to take it away the final question. Oh, God. The final question. Yeah. Dr. Cathy Slater. Yes. What's the biggest animal you could take in a fight? The biggest animal I could take in a fight? <laughs> yeah. Barehanded. Barehanded. One on one. Right. You can, if you want, you can play with the terrain a little bit. You can show your work in as you're talking us through this. 
What do you think is the biggest animal you could subdue? That I could subdue? Oh, God, I don't, this is a difficult one. I'm quite heavy for my size. So I, you know, most animals, I reckon I could just sit on its head and it'd have a bit of a problem. So that, that would help. It's okay. just the easiest, how quickly could I get on their head before they bit me or ate me? So would be the question, wouldn't it, really? So it'd be a case of rugby tackling onto the ground and then just try and yep. use my weight. That's probably going to be the best thing I'm going to do. Punching, I don't think I'm going to be that fast. Okay, mm-hmm. so good working. So now, where are we Where, where are, we are we up to animal-wise? Right, so could I take down a bear? Oh. Probably not. <laughs> probably. <laughs> bit, probably not. I mean, I don't know, maybe if I punched it in the nose, got it by surprise yeah. or something, yeah. that might help. I thought um, we just ruled out punching. Probably, <laughs> well, that's true. I don't know, do I have the element of surprise? Could I be in a tree and just drop on them? Oh, because yeah. actually, then I could take down a bear. If it was just minding its own business, wandering underneath, and I fell on it, from a giant height, like I reckon a, I could do some damage. Like what? a luchador from the top <laughs> yeah, rope. Basically, yeah. <laughs> With the mask so that, okay. that could work for quite a lot of animals yeah. if I can do the element of surprise of leaping out of a tree on them, for any, sure. Any particular bear species? Well, not like the cute little ones. I'd feel <laughs> bad. So what, a polar bear? <laughs> a grizzly? Oh, but polar bears, poor polar bears. I just want to give it a cuddle if I actually saw it. Maybe not a bear. Let's try and pick an animal that I like less, which is going to take us into like wasps and stuff. Well, you know, we're not saying that you're killing it. We're just saying that you're incapacitating it. You know, it could could just be knocked out. It's going to come to. And I've already said that the only way I'm going to do it is if this animal doesn't know that this is happening. (laughs) So it's a poor animal minding its own business. I'm going to launch myself out of a tree on top of it. So I feel like it's already not very fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so bear, I don't know. But I reckon if I leapt out of a tree onto a lion and it didn't know I was coming, yeah. do you know what I mean? And I like, splat in onto the top of it and then punched it in the face, I reckon I could incapacitate it. You heard it here first. <laughs> Dr. Kathy Slater thinks Mammologist. she can... <laughs> thinks she can take a lion in a fight. Only if I was throwing myself out of a tree and it didn't know I was coming. If it was just me facing a lion, it's going to eat me, obviously. I'm not that stupid. With, with a luchador mask. <laughs> with a luchador um, mask. Yeah, Sticking exactly. to the luchador element. Yeah, there you go. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I guess we should explain a little bit of the the camp setup. Yeah. Shall we explain a little bit about where we're living? So we are currently at base camp um, here in Mexico, which they call KM20. And it's basically there's a road into the forest um, and then there's a few very small buildings which are being used to house the science kit and where people eat and then in the forest behind the medic the medic yep the medic's in there stefan and then the forest completely surrounds this you know it's a a small road in and then the forest completely surrounds this camp in the forest behind there's then a load of tents in like the area that the tents are in which are under trees and then the area of the buildings which are out in the open it's not a perfect rectangle, but I'd say the whole thing is half a football pitch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that big. Not that big. No. Yeah. You very much feel like you're in the middle of the jungle. Yeah. And then by the tents, there's the toilets, which by expedition standards, they're not that bad. No, they're not. They're like, you know, I mean, there's no flush. Nope. They're long drop. Yep. There's some spiders in them. Yep. There's some other miscellaneous jungle creatures in them. Yep. But, you know, they do the job. They do the job. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know that's where we're currently spending our time and then from here there are transects out into the forest which are being studied by all the researchers yeah so when we're talking to people and they're talking about transects these are two kilometer walks going sort of radiating out from this camp some of them as jack mentioned you do get a drive to get into here down a little rickety road and some of them you get sort of dropped off because it's a huge forest area so sort of shortcut to where the transect starts and then two kilometers of monitoring and then nip back i think there's four radiating out from this camp in total to cover the area here and then there are the satellite camps there's two satellite camps which are just smaller fewer people at the more remote but they also have their two kilometer transects so that each camp kind of gets monitored in the same way um and then some of the projects so for the birds for example if anyone i'm sure people are familiar with jack's instagram there's mist netting happening here so Mm -hmm. they might not necessarily do the whole two kilometers yeah they'll pick a spot set up and monitor that bit come back same for the bats so different things get measured in slightly different ways the habitat to understand the structure of the forest itself 
there are plots again along these two kilometers so instead of doing you know trying to measure the whole forest at once you pick these random plots and they will get I was about to say they will get chopped up they will not yeah, get they, chopped no. up <laughs> that's sort of the exact opposite of what's yeah. happening oh there's a a very loud we've got a brown jay live on the podcast directly up in the trees hello sir I'm gonna I'm willing to say that's the first brown jay ever to appear on a podcast yeah so you know tip of the spear <laughs> look at us live looking at animals on the podcast oh yeah there he is I can see him I would say one of the least podcastable activities is us in <laughs> silence looking at an animal at least it's a very loud one yeah that's true there he goes lovely yeah much to say to be a squawky little bitch somewhere else (laughs) (laughs) um so yes before we were rudely interrupted there's all these scientists here but there's actually quite a few people around isn't there how many do you reckon there are total number of people on camp what do you reckon um there's probably around, I reckon, what, 40? 40. Yeah, so there's probably 40. around 40 people. And that's uh, the science staff. That's a couple of dissertation students. Um, and then that's we've, there's a school here mm-hmm. from Switzerland. Yep. So there's a Swiss school here. And they are, you know, getting like this once-in-a-lifetime experience where you get to go out with these research scientists, being a, an amazing part of the world, uh, and get to tag along with their research. So, yep. yeah, that's basically the vibe of the camp going on at the minute. Once-in-a-lifetime until you start a podcast and get invited. <laughs> so we'd had our overview of where we were from the head scientist and we'd settled into camp it was now time for us to get out into the forest with the people running the surveys we thought we'd start at the start and so we headed out with habitat surveyor jamie hartup who was going to teach us all about the mad jungle trees of calak mall we are live in the forest in the forest with Habitat Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Hello. Now, when we say Habitat Jamie, your role here is to survey the actual habitat of the forest, isn't it? Yeah. So can you explain a little bit about what you do and why that's important? Uh, I wander into the woods and I hug trees. <laughs> uh, but while I'm doing that, I'm putting a tape measure around a tree. Mm-hmm. And so the reason you measure habitat is to tell you, one, what you've got, uh, how it's changing, but also the various habitat measurements that you take they kind of provide useful data for if you've got like a jaguar print nearby you can say oh it's it's nearest to this habitat and kind of things like tree diameter mm-hmm. uh, that can kind of be converted into well the size of the tree which was in the size of the canopy and the amount of fruit it can produce and things like that which are useful things to know so is that working out really like the structure of the forest? yeah so there's what trees you've got where but also you know how big are they what's the understory like how dense is it is it um how closed is the canopy and this biosphere reserve is massive. Yeah. So how much habitat do you measure? Or how many plots? Or Ooh. how's it sort of structured in that sense? As many plots as possible, to be honest. Um, it's kind of five plots per transect, meaning that you've got intermittent measures along a transect. And each plot is 20 by 20 meters. Okay. So it's sort of a, a sample along the transect. But habitat within Calak Mall is kind of really variable, even along a transect. And so to sample the whole thing, it would be kind of <laughs> madness. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is basically designed to go hand in hand with the data that's collected on transects. So all that other, from all the other teams that are doing birds, bats, uh, reptiles, amphibians, etc., etc., that all links back then. Yeah. They can fight, they can compare what they've seen to the habitat of that area, yeah. the data that you've got to work that out. Yeah. But I mean, there are so many different types of tree here and so many different types of plant. I wouldn't even begin to guess a number on how many. Mm-hmm you're not IDing everything in the forest. However, you have learnt a couple and you're working with a Mayan guide who's sort of showing you the forest, is yeah. that correct? So according to the book I've been reading, there's like 360 species yep. of tree in Calakmul, maybe 364. That's from like 2000 though. So there's probably- Almost one for every day of the year. Yeah, there's probably way more. There's a good calendar in that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the last plot we did had at least 20 species in and that's in a 20 by 20 meter square. Wow. Wow. And I can, I can tell you about these trees if you want because we're mysteriously stood next to some trees <laughs> as we've been having this conversation. <laughs> yeah, what are the chances? I know. Peel back the curtain, why don't you? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. please do because we, we don't know anything about them. So this tree, which looks, it looks a bit like an oak to me. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's one of the most characteristic trees here. It's got very ridge bark. It's sort of quite pale, but dark in the bottom of the ridges. Yeah. It's a Chico Sapote, which is a local name, which is a chewing gum tree. So Chicle comes from this tree. Ah. And um, you can see the 
they're gonna crunch now. You can see, you can see the scars. Oh wow, yeah. Where they've harvested it. So this is quite a young one. Um, but there's some really big trees which kind of, they could be hundreds and hundreds of years old and they'll have fainter and fainter scars back in time. Um, so the guide here, Don Victor, I think he used to be a chiclero, so someone who would go and harvest chewing gum. And it was the chicleros who sort of rediscovered Calakmul when they were looking for chewing gum trees and they went, oh, there's some big ruins here. Oh, wow. And then they <laughs> told some archeologists who flew a plane and went, oh, wow, there's some big ruins poking out the forest here. And then yeah. they went down to survey and went, really big ruins here. <laughs> And yeah, so this is a really cool tree. Similar to sort of rubber when you cut it, you get so, white sap. So that when we're saying that they harvest the gum from it, then we're talking about them getting the sap. That's what it is, is it? Yeah, the scar is sort of like a diagonal slash, and this yeah. is quite a small one, but normally it's like zigzagged, crisscrossed up the bark, yeah. often quite a long way up. And um, Esteban, who's a guide at another camp, was telling me that you want to harvest sort of roughly 15 years in between right. and any more you could do it more than that but that can often kind of overdo it and end up killing the tree because ultimately right. you're cutting into the bark and it's going to expose the tree to all sorts of stuff and this is actually quite a, a fun a fun spot because there are two other trees that i'd like to talk about yeah uh, there's chaka and chichen which are kind of i'll mention at the same time because chichen uh is the bark's kind of scaly i recognize it because it looks almost like reptilian oh is uh, that this one here yeah it's the only one that has bark that looks like that. Oh, and wow. the leaves are kind of crink like crinkly beech leaves and they're quite far away <laughs> against a very bright sky. You'd have to trust me on it. But this one has sort of a black sap that's really irritating. Um, and so supposedly it gets worse the more you're exposed to it. Oh. Supposedly the Mayans, well, a lot of this forest is influenced by the Mayans. And obviously you don't want nasty trees hanging around where you're living. Yeah. So there's fewer of them around the ruins. So maybe they were thinned out from the areas that people were living. Maybe. Um, and the one next to it, the green one, uh, with orange flaky bark, which is sometimes called the tourist tree because it's got peeling orange skin. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is, the local name for it is Chaka or Chaka Rojo. Right. Um, and this is the antidote tree to Chichen. Oh, wow. And so often, they often but don't always grow together. So it's like um, dock and nettle yeah. in the UK. Yeah. But you can make a salve from the bark of this to treat the burns from chaka and it's got a really smooth i mean the bark so it has got all this flaky almost skin which is paper yeah. almost like papery silver birch-esque bark when it's coming off yeah um and then underneath it's got like a smooth green trunk yeah it's like jack the beans jack's beanstalk yeah. sort of green i've never seen i don't think i've ever seen a tree with a green trunk before it looks like you've taken sort of a shrubby thing and like blown it up yeah yeah. yeah, I've never it's seen. It's really weird. I've never seen that before. It's very cool. To anyone in the UK, it has an air of a paper birch yeah. to yeah. it. The way the bark is kind of peeling and curling and flaking off, very similar in that respect, but with these very striking green and orange. Yeah, has been mentioned. Yeah, super cool. And there's actually the more you look, there's there's chaquettes literally yeah. everywhere. I've just noticed there's like three trees in there. There's a couple here. There's one back there. Yeah. yeah. So the chewing gum tree is chicle. Uh, chica sapote. Chica sapote, but it makes chicle or yep. chicle's gum. Then the antidote tree is chaka, and the bad, evil, scary tree yeah. is chichen. Yeah. Lovely stuff. Right. Should we go for a walk and see what else we find? Yeah. yeah. Let's do it. Nice one. Okay. We've stopped. This is a mad tree. This is bonkers. Not mad as in crazy, but an actual mad tree. Yeah. Like it's angry. Yeah. It's a mad tree to do doing habitat surveys next to yeah. Good luck hugging that. Yeah. So this has got to be, I mean, it looks like some sort of like wild acacia thing. It's got huge like bull horns. Yeah. Almost coming out of like a, a, a evenly spaced intervals along its trunk, along its branches, right out onto the edge of its leaves. Each thorn's about two inches, three and a bit maybe four centimeters long yeah and is thick taper is yeah. not having a good time trying to eat this is it but no. it's it's thick and then tapers to a really fine point yeah like yeah it will still stab it's you it's really stabby i just yeah that's broken my skin so there we go straight in the line of fire yeah okay what have we got but the, the tree is also covered in ants because yep. um these fawns not only are they spiky but, but they're hollow thanks for uh, waiting to our <laughs> And a home to lots of ants. No way. Are... You can see the hole. Yeah. When you get closer, you can see that in all of these 
thorns, there are tiny little holes that tiny little ants are going in and out of. I'd like to volunteer Jack Baddams to snap a thorn off. This is, someone's okay. this is someone's home, Jack. It is someone's home, but there are also, they also have lots of homes on this tree. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to bite the bullet. Here we go. Okay. I have a pair of There's these bull horns. Already? It's the countdown to you getting bitten. <laughs> but it's also tougher than I thought it was. I thought it was going to snap cleanly, but it's quite like... Whoa! 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 <laughs> There we go, it came charging out. But yeah, it's completely hollow inside. And full of ants. And full shock, listener, <laughs> full of ants <laughs> that we saw crawling in there. But yeah, they're completely hollow, so I guess they're just casings for ants to make their home in. So, so what's the deal here, Jamie? I mean, there's a couple of trees that do this. The, the ants live in the tree, they also protect the tree. So there's actually an old wasp nest on the tree, which... I don't think got very far. There is, yeah. Which might be because the ants attacked it. So there are some sort of trees which have similar sort of ant hotels like this. And yeah. the ants, they'll eat the things on the tree that are going to eat the tree. So they'll eat the herbivores. But what, eat, eat like the pest insects? Yeah, yeah. Not like coming yeah. yeah, yeah, not yeah. like coming yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 Consume yeah. however many really big ants. kilos of yeah. <laughs> But again, if you're a tapir trying to eat this tree, not only is it spiky, but it's going to have ants which are going to come bite you, so you might try and avoid it. Yeah. Um, but there are trees which have similar kind of symbioses like this. The ants will also like garden, so they'll keep other plants from growing oh. kind of on or near the tree sometimes. And I don't know if this is happening here, but you know, it's having a pretty good time of it. Yeah. It's not. It's not got much competition. See, I was going to ask, like looking at this, those thorns alone should be keeping something yeah. from eating this treat, right? I mean, those are serious, serious thorns. However, so I was like, why bother with the ants as well? But then you mentioned the gardening aspect. And the pests, like little aphids and things like that that might yeah. come and eat the leaves. If you've yeah. got an army full of ants at your disposal, yeah, you know, you can take care of the little things as well as the big things. Yeah. That's one of the most furious treats I've ever seen. Yeah. Photo with the angry tree. Photo with the angry tree. And then on to the next one. Yeah. yeah. This is a quite a nondescript looking tree. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a pretty basic tree. But there's someone that's actually written on the label, ignoring the, the fun caterpillar. Uh, this tree is Palo de Gas, which means like, but like gas tree, because it's, it's really dry. When you dry it out, when you dry the resin, it's really flammable. Oh. So it's literally like Palo gas oh so it's like there's in gases in petrol tree petrol yeah so it just lights really easily supposedly i think it's the resin and like the actual wood when you dry it out right but okay good to know for jungle survival 101 the petrol tree this is palo de sangre okay. and sangre means blood and this is a dead one so it might not do it very well what should happen is when you scratch it it bleeds you see it getting red yeah. And you can see that run underneath it that clearly yeah. looks yeah. like... Yeah. And so yeah. it, it's now I've scratched it, it's starting to bleed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. That's it's really weird. It's literally pooling like... It's really weird. Blood, like a cut. And that's just its sap? Uh, yeah. Oh, so it's literally... Look at it. Jamie's got some on his finger now and it... Yeah. It looks a bit like, like strawberry jam, but also <laughs> like blood. That's mad. That is crazy. That is a bleeding tree. There's no other way of describing it. No. You just scratched that tree and it bled. That's the most jungle tree. Yeah. I mean, well, it's a toss up between the tree that is home to ants. Yeah. With the biggest thorns I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Or the tree that literally bleeds. Which is or, actually just behind the oh, yeah. blood tree. So a tree that makes you bleed and a tree that bleeds. <laughs> right next to each other. Yeah. And then there's the toxic tree. Yeah. You know, then, can't there's the, that. then there's the fire tree. Yep. <laughs> and then there's the chewing gum tree, which is maybe a little bit yeah, a little bit off piece. Cool trees. This yeah. has been excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jamie. We will be keeping an eye out for all these trees. Yeah. Thank you for coming. As we go about. But we do have one final question. Of course, we've got one final question. We've got one final question to ask you, Jamie. The biggest question. Yeah. Biggest question you've ever been asked. Okay. Will you marry me? <laughs> I thought you'd never ask somebody. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. What's the biggest animal you could take in a fight? The biggest animal I could take in a fight? Yeah. Like 
Am I allowed to ask a clarifying question? Of course you are. You can ask as many clarifying questions as you like. like biggest of a particular type of animal or an animal that's naturally big because i could take like a pretty big like slug oh like like, like if it was a car oh, so you're wanting slug. to like size it up yeah hang on i'm just gonna have to talk to the adjudicator uh roderick charlotte no, <laughs> come over to one come. what do we do about this what do we do we didn't we didn't we didn't plan this yeah, but you can't like magically make yeah, a shit no, thing big no that is true yeah there's no is... magic in Fightland. yeah no that is true yeah, yeah. No. okay we've consulted the panel that's cheating and i'm afraid we can't let you do that it has okay. to be an actual animal that exists at its current size okay however good clarifying question yeah, yeah. thinking outside the box i do like that yeah. yeah but we'd like to put you back in the box if that's okay, <laughs> okay. i reckon i could take an ostrich because it's got a pretty it's big and it's got a pretty like strong but like thin neck okay so you're going that's your point of weakness yeah as long as you can get past the, the kicking feet yeah the famously deadly kicking feet <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the famously fast and flexible long neck yeah but now i've said ostrich we're going to stick with ostrich and i might die by an ostrich all right ostrich on the board here we go <laughs> jamie thank you very much thank you roddy did you see what was living in the spit bucket earlier? <laughs> First of all, spit bucket. <laughs> <laughs> so when we're here on camp, the, the dotted around the camp are, I mean, buckets that you... I mean, it sounds like an old western, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Spitting tar or whatever it was. Into that. <laughs> um, but basically, there are when you're brushing your teeth, you need somewhere to spit the toothpaste. And there are basically just buckets full of sand or something in them. Some some miscellaneous miscellaneous earthy substrate. Yeah. So you spit your toothpaste in there and then they get that gets taken away and dealt with so you're not spitting Colgate all over the forest floor. And in there one today, one of the students found, I am gonna say one of the most extraordinary animals I've ever seen. Yeah. It was kinda like if a gummy bear crossed with cousin it from the adams family crossed with a face hugger from e- alien great shout yeah yeah and yeah bright orange yeah 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 it was a bright orange furry tentacly caterpillar thing yeah yeah i i've got a picture of it so if we want to throw this up on like social media or whatever when this episode goes out we can do but yeah. it was like it had, it was like a hand it, had, it i think basically we came to the conclusion because no one actually seemed to really know what it was <laughs> that it was a cat, it was a caterpillar it was a larvae of something yeah um and it was moving i'm going to re- just quickly throughout our stay here miscellaneous furry bug caterpillar yeah right, don't touch it leave it be <laughs> yeah, do not touch it caterpillar yeah, yeah but this <laughs> miscellaneous jungle creature had got what looked like sort of like a starfish that were, but it was like crawling up it was yeah it was really really old i've never i've never seen anything like it yeah the earth has many wonders but the earth has many horrors <laughs> one of them is living in the spit bucket <laughs> <laughs> darkness fell and all the sounds of the nighttime jungle began, we were grabbed by head scientist Kathy. She'd been stewing on the answer that she'd given to the biggest animal she could take in a fight and wanted a second crack at it. Now, we couldn't say no to the boss, so we got out the mics and listened to what she had to say. We're here in the dead of night. <laughs> yeah, in the dead of night. We've been pulled to one side by head of science. <laughs> Dr. Kathy Slater. Who's got a score to settle. Yeah. <laughs> now, you're leaving, aren't you? At 6am tomorrow morning. I am indeed, So this is yes. literally the last chance you've got to get this on record. Exactly. Very important. Yes. And off your chest. But yes. you want to... You want to... Uh, take another... Step up to the plate again. Exactly. And yes. take another swing. Exactly. Yeah, at what animal you could take in a fight. Yes. So on our first take... Mm-hmm. You said a, a large animal. A lion. A lion out of a tree. If I jumped out of a tree onto its head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But tell us why you're looking to change your mind on that. Well, because I was asked what was the largest animal that I think I could take down. But the mm. reality is I haven't really got any quarrels with any medium or large sized animals. <laughs> yeah. and I'm cool with them. I've got no reason to pick a fight with them. Yep. And I didn't really want to 
do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there are some smaller animals out there that could probably do with a good kick in. <laughs> so I'd like to uh, I'd like to change my answer. <laughs> All right then. Let's let's hear it, Kathy. What are we going for? Birds. Oh. <laughs> I hope everyone can immediately realise <laughs> why we're doing this. <laughs> oh, let's hear it then. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Round one. Okay. Well. What, what's your problem with birds, Cathy? I feel like everyone loves them. Everyone's loved them for a long time and they, they know it and it's gone to their heads a bit and they're just a bit arrogant and they look at you with those beady eyes and they're just looking at you saying, I'm better than you. And it pisses me off. And I feel like maybe they might need a little bit of a punch. (laughs) (laughs) So, hence why I wanted to change my answer. So you're just saying, what, any particular birds? Not penguins, because I like them. Any other bird apart from penguins, really. Any other bird? (laughs) Okay. Any any particular birds to the to this camp to the area that we hear here? Uh yes. Well, uh, I think my my all time favourites, well, the ones that really need a good kicking are the chuchalakas, <laughs> because not only are they arrogant wankers, they're also really loud, <laughs> and they deliberately keep me up at night. And I know they do it just yeah. to annoy me. They don't need to. And Everyone else is asleep. It's not dawn. <laughs> you don't need to make a sound. Yeah. And like, it's a really hideous sound too. <laughs> <laughs> no one needs that they're like big chickens aren't they yes ugly too yes. big chickens are you seeing least concern I should point out to everyone so totally okay to punch them how many chakalakas do you reckon you could take right how many days have I got <laughs> <laughs> as many as yeah. you can give me yeah, yeah as long as you've got a tea break yeah tea breaks toilet breaks keep giving me some food and then yeah I'll just keep going for days <laughs> All right, I'm about to ring the bell on round two. Right. Ding, ding, ding. Mm. Round two. Jack Baddams, could you oh. just let us know one of the worst birds out there? One of, so one of my worst birds. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Is it the one that Kathy's already mentioned? It's the one that Kathy's already mentioned. <laughs> I don't like penguins, Kathy. Oh, no. my God, really? <laughs> so I love what? birds, you hate birds, but I don't really like penguins. What's and you penguins like penguins. To you? I just, to be honest, I think it's because they're, they're a bit basic. For me, they're a bit of an honorary mammal. That's probably why I like because them everybody, yeah, you know, anyone less who, birdie than the other birds. I, yeah, everybody who, so li- everybody who likes shit, them, everyone who likes the monkeys, and everyone who uh-huh, like, they also better. like penguins as well. And you know, <laughs> literally because they're better. <laughs> There's a reason why we like the monkeys. More advanced, oh, <laughs> cognitively advanced, better. It's a good job you're the head scientist. <laughs> it is. Yes, I like to put things correct and in order. Yes, I can't argue with the head scientist. <laughs> oh. All right. I don't know if you've got anything to put on the table for a third round, Jack. No, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna concede defeat. Okay. Basically, <laughs> birds are shit. At the end. <laughs> Kathy, thank you for coming back. You're very welcome. Was... I had to get this off my chest. It was very important. I wish I could say it's been a pleasure, but it really hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> And so, with my ornithological pride taking a bit of a beating, we went back to our tent to fall asleep to the sound of the forest's insects. Thank you for coming along with us on episode one of our trip to the jungle. If you want to actually see the stuff that we're talking about, go and follow us over on Instagram at HowManyGeese. A huge shout out to Operation Wallacea for taking us along. This is only one of a number of expeditions they run around the world each summer. And if you're interested in finding out more about joining them out in the wild as a student or a member of staff, then we've left their website in the description below. As always, a rating or review of the show helps us out loads. And if you want to throw us a donation, you can find us over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash howmanygeese. We'll see you again next Tuesday when How Many Geese Mission Mexico continues. <laughs>